And so, again, the whole book is a letter, and then we got into the beginning of the letter, of the whole book, is, is these sev seven messages to these seven churches. And we, we spent some, I think, maybe two weeks on that, talking about the, some of their themes. So one big, one theme, I forgot to write it up here, but one big theme that we saw that each church gets is this encouragement to, uh, to overcome, to conquer. We talked a little bit about that last week, how that ties together the message of the seven of the seven letters to each church and how we're not fully certain what that what that means and we're looking to the rest of the book to help fill in the gap and that we just identified that overcoming means getting through the obstacles and challenges and each church had its own obstacle and challenge that they faced whether that was laziness whether that was losing their first love whether that was facing um, false teaching either tolerating it or accepting it. Uh, we saw challenges from the throne of Satan in some of those letters. And to overcome means to do all those things, to overcome their unique challenges. So we, we just kind of left that hanging there so, so far. And we are approaching, we are now in chapters 4 and 5. I'd like to read just, it's a combined total of 20-some-odd verses. We'll read the whole, the whole thing together just to kind of get that under our belt. It's good to have the whole vision together. And this is really where a lot of the rubber meets the road for how we're looking at Revelation, understanding it. There isn't a whole lot of, you know, issues with the first three chapters in terms of what does it mean, regardless of what approach that we take to it. It's, it, it is what it is, these letters. It's really here that we begin to see a difference in how this can affect big picture ideas. So we'll, we'll see if anything turns up today, if you have any questions or thoughts about that. <clears throat> And so I'll read that, and as I read it, you know, everything that we've talked about so far, if there's a question or a thought, let's just start addressing and, and talking about that. Um, so four and five, yeah, like I said, it's going to be a total of some 20-odd 20 20 verses. It might seem like a lot that we're going to read through, but it will be more helpful to have read it together, and then we can reference all of it, because we don't want to separate these two things. This is the throne room scene following these... Uh, seven distinct messages to these churches. So, let me just read this. Four and five. Chapter four. After, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within 
and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in earth or on heaven or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So we have this massive worship scene in heaven or in this vision. Um, and this scene is sets off the rest of the book for us. Right? The This book or scroll with the seven seals is what from chapter 6 through 19 gets peeled back, right? That's what the rest of the vision contains. So this, these chapters are super important for what we do with the rest of the book. Right? They really help guide how we understand it. So just remember that the rest of the book are not distinct separate visions. They all fall under what's happening here at the throne room. It's the lamb opening the seals. And the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, uh, they are contained within this this moment, this vision of the Lamb opening this up. It's almost as if the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, the seven trumpet gives off the seven bowls in the visions, and they, they are what fill up chapters 6 through 19. So for sure, what's happening here makes a difference for us, for how we understand the rest of the book. So it's a, what, this one complete moment. 
so that's the significant portion. Um, what stood out to you guys about uh, the chapters? Uh, just and it really can be anything that you thought was was interesting from either your previous reading or just right now this morning. Especially if there's something that relates to the the letters uh, that maybe you hadn't noticed before or a repeated theme. So I'll we'll open it up for just comments or observations and thoughts. Mm. Talk about Trinity. Mm hmm. So, is that. Where, what is that? Where did that come from, right? Yeah. So, we'll, we see a couple of these types of images where it's, it's almost like, where, <laughs> where did this come from? So, that, and it showed up in chapter one, mm -hmm. too, right? We, if you notice that in one, that was part of the introduction, the seven, seven spirits that are with God. It's like, wait a second, we, we haven't heard this at all in the New Testament. Where, where did this come from? So that, that would be a good, a good, uh, but we put that as a good question for now. And, th and this number shows up quite a bit in the book. If you've read ahead, yeah. the, the number doesn't seem to be insignificant. So it's a very good observation. You were going to say something, Dennis? How spiritual is, but uh, I, I, I happened to see a, a video online this week of people ice skating uh, way up north somewhere, and and the, the ice was just clear. I mean, you could see way down in, and so you know I thought thought of that when the sea of glass clear crystal. Mm. Yeah, because that that was pretty amazing. It gave you an image in your mind. Yeah. and they're sparkling, but I don't necessarily think of them as clear. Mm. I'm not a gemologist by any means. <laughs> yes, well, some of these two are, are names that are of things that I don't, I don't know what they look like. You know, I, at, least, at least I don't have an image in my head uh -huh. of what yeah. they might look like. Yeah, carnelian. Car with regard to what you were saying about the, the seven spirits, when I'm not... I confess, I didn't read it with this class in mind. When I've read um, Revelations previous in my own study, <clears throat> I get the image of um, where in, I think it's the Galatians chapter 3 to the Spirit. Like the, the God is so big and he's so layered that almost like the fruits of his Spirit as they're at work in us are aspects of his spirit um, and, and I don't understand the seven either but that's how I kind of see it as like a shaling that, that God when we picture um, a person we see just, just the one entity but, but God has so many layers um, about him and I hope that you can bring some light to maybe of other scriptures that can help us to understand it but I see it as <laughs> just just layers of who God is at work in our midst. And for me, um, I, the, I like to think of myself as a person with an artistic mind. When I was studying it on my own, I pulled out um, a piece of drawing paper. And you put some images down. I started down. to try and draw it. And as I was drawing it, I was trying to imagine you know, who and what was being referenced 
And when I got to the sea, I glanced, and, and it's, this is near Pam. <laughs> Any other teaching that says it, it was just like settled in my heart. All of creation will one day worship God, all of creation. We who have accepted the price that Jesus paid on the cross have been made clean. And I think that we are the sea of glass. I think that our souls are the sea of glass. And the reason I do that is when I got to where the beast is in the sea of blood, the red, those are the ones that have not accepted Christ's forgiveness and they're still drenched in their own sin. And I, I don't know, maybe it's just the artist mind in me, but but that's what I I perceive it as being. That's an interesting thought, yeah. I didn't I hadn't made that uh, that type of it'd be interesting to think about that. The the sea of glass as being representative of of the of people that he like we too are there worshiping and we are washed as clean as clear as a crystal Beautiful. yeah <clears throat> one of the so one of the challenges we have with all these different images in revelation is to is to try to figure out their meaning right how to extract what 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 was john or jesus through john communicating and what is he trying to get to us and that and that's the challenge and there's a certain amount of subjectivity in that so um totally valid to think what what we think put our opinions out there and reflect and then try it as much as we can to hold that at the same time always reading and being open to rethinking you know the the thought especially when it comes to the to the images and the symbols i find that the things that end up repeating more are the things i gravitate towards Solidify, you know, images and ideas that repeat where I can see a pattern that helps me feel more comfortable. And ones that are more singular or less frequent, you make guesses with time and then you see if it works out, you know. So that, that would be something to go, okay, m maybe it represents that. Let's see how that holds as we read further. So one text for that particular imagery of the throne that you brought up, Dennis, would be Ezekiel 1 and 2. If you want to read through those two, first two chapters, there's a large series of images that are very similar when Ezekiel is in Babylon and he receives a vision of the presence of God. There's a lot of images there that correspond to chapters 4 and 5 here of Revelation. I, we're not going to go look at it together only because that will, I think, sidetrack us for a moment. But if you want to read that this week and then and what was again? Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1 and 2. 1 and 10. Uh, yeah, uh, and 10. It's almost like there's four creatures. Yep. Our God's mode of transport seems like Ezekiel sees them coming in. And if you look at the details, you'll see the movement is similar, like what you're saying, Joe. You also see that they're 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 a little different. They're very similar, and then they're different. And so that would uh, that's just interesting to look at and to reflect on a little bit. So that would be something worth looking at, Pam. Is the the imagery of the glass there? How similar it is to Ezekiel and what it's what. What was it doing? How does it work out there? So that, that would be worth looking at. Just about the seven that we brought up quickly. There, this is not very easy to pinpoint down, I, I would say. But I think in the message it says sevenfold spirit. Yeah, he's, he's already giving a hint, as Eugene is, to what he thinks, which is he thinks that represents the Holy Spirit. And the, what, what he's doing is, the thought is that as you go back to the letters, there are seven churches and if you go back further to chapter 1, we saw the image with seven lampstands that Jesus was walking around. 
And the seven lampstands represent not just seven specific churches, but the church as a whole, Jesus among the church. And potentially where that comes from is Zechariah 4. If you wanted to turn to Zechariah 4, representing the people of God before God, this might be, I think, I believe this is one of the other places the seven lampstand imagery comes from, or is mentioned in the Bible, I should say. So if you want to follow, it's Zechariah chapter 4, <clears throat> and the first few verses, also a vision. So it happens to be a vision, not, not an actual thing that Zechariah is, that's there with Zechariah. So uh, here's the vision. And in, the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, well, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And then he described some other things, uh, olive trees and stuff that we might return to later in Revelation. But there's maybe an answer as to maybe where the idea of seven lampstands was born out of. And this would eventually represent kind of the people of God shining a light, being, being his light. So maybe the idea, and one reason why Eugene, I think, does that is the seven lampstands being the church, and their light is fueled by the Spirit of God in, in the church, in the lampstand. So it just kind of keeps the theme going. So that might be one reason why the Spirit is described as seven spirits. Yeah, Tom. Uh, also, isn't seven uh, seen as the number of perfection throughout Scripture? Yeah, it's like complete, full... Uh, fullness of it so it could just like the seven churches represent all the church the fullness of it that that would be the idea that it, it could be that and that's why this number is repeated quite a bit and so we have seven seals seven trumpets seven bowls those are going to be significant right and so that's very likely that we're talking about symbols that carry these meanings of fullness completion so Jesus, you've heard this one. How many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? 70 times 4, 70 times 7, which means like not literally 490, but completely, yeah. Uh, complete forgiveness, which shouldn't really have an end or a limit uh, to. So yeah, th thanks, Tom. That, that would be another almost like symbolic reason for what this... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're with Zechariah. Yeah, right in there. Exactly. Right nope. <laughs> nope. Don't know what this is about. So very good. We have seven seven spirits. Uh, I think we will be safe if we can assume it represents the Holy Spirit as a whole. And anything else that you guys thought was interesting about this throne room scene? We talked a little bit about the lamb standing as slain, so we'll we'll return to that later. But so when they sing the song, uh, verse nine, it talks about. This is chapter five. Five. Yes. Okay. Uh, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Okay. That's a big one. Yeah. <clears throat> this really connects <clears throat> connects us. Blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and people. 
purchased us and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and you will reign on earth so as I read that I'm reading that thinking that that would be us in the future at some point but we always think when we pass away we're going to go to heaven and then when you read they're going to reign on earth and you know it talks now? about a new heaven and a new earth. Aren't we doing that now, though? Are we his church? Aren't we reigning with him now? <coughs> I feel like people keep expecting that um, as being something futuristic. But I think it's our, it's our privilege and our responsibility now. And it gives us... Um, <coughs> the call of integrity to how we carry that responsibility. <coughs> if I am um, the temple of God, is he not reigning through me? Is he not reigning through me when I make choices that reflect him well, especially in difficult circumstances or hard-pressed? Am I not standing as an opportunity for the person observing me to make a decision which way they're going to choose. I think it's whether you look at it as personally or corporately because because it says that Satan <coughs> does have, he has allowed him to have power now yeah. in this present age. He is, God is in control, but he has given Satan this dominion for this time, whatever that is going to be. It makes me think of the verse that says that we don't need a high priest to, to approach the throne when the veil was split in two. <coughs> we have access. Now, whether future reigning, I, I think, to me, I'm thinking personal versus a, a, a kingdom as an actual reign on earth. I think it's now that we're invited to think future because I think that comes to what you're saying, which way do you see it happening? So this is this is bringing us to the some of the division questions about division point of the book. But yes, also how do we handle certain things that seem to be almost in conflict with each other? So um, first thing to note about this exact subject, verse ten of chapter five, they shall reign on the earth. That phrase, depending on which, I'm not really sure if translations vary on this or not. They might. Um, there are actually two valid options on the manuscripts of this one verse and one is a present and one is a future so there's actually two historical traditions on they shall reign <clears throat> there was one that says they will as a future and then there's a very very good manuscript that also says they are reigning on the earth yeah so the question yeah the question is those those seem like uh, they are two different words and they would be two different meanings so let me put it this way. When we see, when we looked at Christ and we saw the lamb standing as though slain, that was one of those big contradictions in the book. How could a dead creature stand up and do anything? Go grab a book if it's dead, right? Because that is what the phrase is in Revelation 5, a lamb standing slain. We have the phrase in English, as though it was slain, just to help make sense of it. But that's not there in, in the Greek text. It's just a lamb standing dead. It's this image that's not supposed to make sense. And the idea of overcoming the book, we looked at this two weeks ago, 
is exactly that. The lamb overcomes, but yet it's killed. It's this oxymoron. It's this paradox of the death of Jesus looked like the victory of the enemy, but yet it actually ended up being the defeat of the enemy and the victory of Jesus, right? It's this thing that doesn't make sense. So might I propose that we look to the cross to kind of help us understand some of these things that seem to be in conflict, like the New Testament affirms over and over again, Ephesians 1, Jesus is above every authority and power, above every name. He's been named, he's been placed there, he is at the right hand of the Father, and he is in charge, ruling. And at the same time, we have chaos and, you know, havoc on the earth and rulers in charge who do not recognize him as the ruler. So we do have both of these things, Pam and Joe uh, or Bev. We have both Jesus reigning and then him also allowing, permitting. And we also have a sense that in the future, he will reign differently than he presently reigns, right? This might be the thing that's very helpful. We do think that in the end, when he comes back down, he exercises rule and reign differently than he presently exercises rule and reign. So we can have both. We can have the cake and eat it too. We can both affirm there is a present aspect to Christ's reign and a, a future aspect that are distinct but yet they all both fall under him exercising reign. Now when it, so when it comes to this question of what, what about our participation in that, is there a way that we can affirm, like Pam, you're suggesting, a present aspect to, the, to us participating in the reign and a future one? This is where the book um, really can be very different. So I put this, we've done this historical graph before about what comes before Jesus and then after, and we haven't gotten to this just because... Uh, we haven't gotten to that part in the book. And now maybe is a good time. I put before two timelines, right? One, we talked about a model that viewed Revelation more as everything related to the future. And the idea with that was, as, uh, as history is progressing towards Christ, the, the story of Israel, let's put it that way, is that God has these promises of the kingdom of God for them or for his people. And the idea in this one perspective, as it gets to, to the cross, it pauses because the, the Jewish nation rejects Jesus' messiahship. And so they, God decides, I'm going to pause it here, and I'm going to delay this for a future moment in history. And then I will pick back up. And in this whole period here, between this, we're going to call this the church age, or the age of grace, or there's just a couple different names, that particular period of time. And when that period is done... I'm going to take the church out of here, uh, and then I, you know, it, we're going to meet in the air, and then we're going to start a sequence of things that will happen, and I'm going to finish up what I had said I was going to do. Right? That, that would be one way for us to read this. And Revelation, basically from here, chapters 4 and 5 and onward, is basically this is the beginning of this moment here. Is that, are we tracking together so far? That makes sense? And so that, that's more of a scenario that we have probably was much more common here in this part of the world. And so we're waiting for events to happen that will indicate that God is about to, -pick, to pick back up where he had left off in the first century. Um, what I'm suggesting as we get to this moment now in the book is that we... I'm going to erase this, sorry. Um, be nice if we could have both at the same time to look at the concept, but... In this scenario, that as we get to the cross and the kingdom of God, the promises of the kingdom of God, that they come and like this is it, that Jesus 
announces the arrival of the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom of God is near, is at hand. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The messages in the gospels is that it did indeed come. And what we read that this, this moment, <clears throat> we talked about this, the son of man passages from Daniel, <coughs> Daniel 7. We spent some time reading about that, that the arrival of the son of man in Daniel is describing when a human figure arrives at the throne room of God, right? That that is the going up to God's throne. But that's the image in Daniel 7. It is not an image of his arrival on earth in the future. Daniel 7 is the Son of Man finally <laughs> arrives before the throne. There's books that are opened, and he receives the authority to exercise his rule on the earth over all the beasts. Right? There's four big beasts in Daniel 7. <clears throat> the proposal I'd like us to think about is is Jesus is the uh, beginning, at the beginning, the arrival of, of God's promises on earth, beginning to rule and reign as, as a human is supposed to rule over the earth. He is that human, though God, he's both God and man. He begins to exercise that, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that authority and kingdom so that this moment is what Revelation 4 and 5 is describing, is the enthronement of Jesus. He was slain. And he purchased, and that's what you brought up, Joe, is interesting. It says there that he's worthy because he purchased and he made a kingdom. And that's exactly what chapter 1 affirms about the followers of Jesus. He has made us unto a kingdom of priests. So there is a present aspect, Pam, to the rule of Jesus that is happening through us. It's not the same as what will be in the future one day, but it, it is present. It is real. So that's what Revelation is saying. Both are happening at the same time. And then reading Revelation 4 and 5 this way would mean that what we're seeing in, in the throne room exchange, it's almost like this is the, the meaning of what him ascending after his resurrection, him going up. This is kind of like, this is, this is what it means. This is what it represents. He goes up to receive authority to empower, to rule, and to reign. And he's the only one that can take that book, which seems to represent rulership, governorship, or authority over the earth or, or something like that or over the people of God and he begins to exercise it so this 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 means then if we were to read it this way that this whole part of the book at the very least is supposed to be understood as happening here for the church in that first century those followers of Jesus and this book relates to this is what's happening with you right now and when we saw the message to the church was overcome you're in this battle with yourself, with the enemy, and you need to overcome. And the very last one, right? I talked about how that last letter might be a general letter of the whole message, you know, like a, a broader, you need to wake up and do this. I'm knocking at the door. Repent at what I'm telling you. There's a phrase at the very end of that letter. <clears throat> so this is chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. <clears throat> He says to the church, um, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So you do get the sense as Jesus speaks to the church, I have taken my place, right? And I'm extending this offer and invitation to you to be faithful now, just as I have also conquered, died, Right, the lamb being slain. That's what 4 and 5 is describing, how he conquered. 
he surrendered himself to the Father's will, refused to compromise, remained faithful to God's plan, and therefore overcame and took possession, took authority, received the power and the authority to rule and to reign. And that's why we can be made, we can participate in, the, in his kingdom. He has that right. He is worthy. He is um, the only one who is worthy to do this. So there is this really clear connection with the letters, encouragement to overcome, because he rules, and then four and five describing how that transaction took place. He went up there next to the father. And that's the exact same sequence in, in Daniel 7. The Son of Man arises, gets to the throne room. There is this big throne room with some big, shiny man sitting on a throne that no one can really grasp at. It's just so powerful. And the books are unleashed, and he's like, here you go. You have dominion now. And here, read, read with, let's read just a little bit of Daniel, Daniel 7 so that our minds have been nice and saturated with this Revelation 4 and 5 vision that hopefully this will also, you'll see how deeply connected. Yes, we have time. I was like, oh no, they stopped rehearsing. Maybe we're like too close to 10 o'clock. We do have enough time to, to enjoy this together. Daniel sometimes can be hard to find, but it's in there past Ezekiel. If you're fishing through to find it, Daniel 7 and let's read this whole little vision, <clears throat> starting at verse 9. Verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. A similar heavenly throne room, right, with one big throne and multiple other thrones in the seam. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. It's just this, you know, the divine council. It shows up a couple of times in the Bible. The people who really rule over all the affairs of what happens in the universe. I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, uh, yeah, I looked because of the sound that it was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And where does he come to? He comes to the Ancient of Days, presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Very similar language to what <clears throat> uh, we see in chapter 5 of Revelation, of the kingdom that has all nations, tongues, and all that stuff uh, created by and for Jesus. These are very closely closely related to the extent that I would say, yeah, these are images describing the same thing, right? The arrival of the Son of Man to receive authority to rule, and he begins to exercise that rule. And so that, that I think, is what Revelation is proposing to us. And those are our two really distinct options. Either that begins and occurs with the arrival of Jesus on earth, his death, resurrection, and ascension, or that's something that's going to happen in the future, right? Those are, those are kind of your two main 
I think, choices on the matter. Um, and what we are going to be looking at is, if we take it this way, how would this impact us for the rest of Revelation, the message itself? It goes from being something that's describing very specific earthly events that we may or may not participate in in our lifetime to a message of God about what has been happening on the earth since the ascension of Jesus. What is the church's role and call? What is it doing? What, is it, what has it been doing here for 2,000 years? What is it supposed to be battling and its purpose, its mission? So it's, those are two very different ways to read Revelation. Right? One would have a much more futuristic uh, description of events and people and places and times. And the other would be a description of the realities that we have been living in and will eventually be consummated at the very end. Chapters 19 through 22 would, would complete that. So it's a, those are very distinct ways of reading the book, but I really enjoy, I really enjoy what this offers us, a message about the rule of God right now, how the Lamb decides to exercise his rule, opening the seals and his judgments. And there are a bunch of conflicting images, like, like what you noticed, Pam, and uh, Joe and Bev. There, there seem to be things that are happening at the same time that don't seem to make sense together. And that's the paradox the church was living under in that first century. How is Jesus the Messiah if we don't see him and the current ruler of the world claims to be the Son of God, the Roman Emperor, and now we're being persecuted and hounded? How are we supposed to understand that Jesus is on top and ruling and reigning. And here's this incredible vision that puts both of them on the map. That's how Jesus exercises his rule. It's, it was by being slain. That's the theme we'll hit on every time. The church rules the same way Jesus rules right now, which is being slain. That's what he tells the two faithful churches, right? Just be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. You will be with me in paradise. That's the second letter, I, I believe. All right, a lot has been thrown out there into the mental space. What, what are your, we have some time here? What are your thoughts? The this little part, uh, the, these two different ways to kind of approach the arrival of the kingdom of God. Did that? Do we need to maybe revisit that? That may, may make sense. I actually I like that you brought out that the overall theme of the letters was not to point out specific. Um, things necessarily as to draw out, overcome, overcome whatever it is that you yourself are personally struggling with. It, it is worth the effort of putting to death the flesh and allowing Christ to live within you and reign within you to overcome. And I had this um, cross-reference with a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples following the interaction with the rich Rich young ruler. Rich young ruler who so desperately wanted to just have the peace in his heart that he was going to heaven, but in the end was unable to yield himself completely to Jesus because of his wealth. Mm. And not so much that interaction as Jesus's interaction with his disciples afterwards, because that troubled their hearts. They said, "Who then can get into heaven? Because we're not even able to keep the law like like they are. But we've left everything to come follow you." So they were seeing the opposite. He couldn't leave his wealth, but he was keeping all of the, but they left what they had, but they they recognized, but you know, we're not. And Jesus's words was, man, it's impossible, but everything is possible with God. And to take that with what you 
just pointed out with where in the letter does um, John immediately show what Jesus did at the cross. God did the impossible for us through Jesus. It's what Jesus said to his disciples. With man, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to overcome. Mm-hmm. But, but take heart, because I have overcome. And I just think it's beautiful. I think it like seals what he was saying to his disciples. And it gives me hope for when the enemy really can come in to any one of us. I don't think that I'm alone in this. With um, personal reminders of you screwed up, you messed up, you got it wrong, um, you acted blindly, and, and just constantly like you can't possibly be measuring up to the righteousness that God desires. And it's like, you know what, you're right. You're right, I can't, but I don't have to because I have the lamb that was slain on my behalf as the one that makes me clean. And I love the fact then, instead of it being like, well, where's he going? with the rest of the letter, like he, he just turns a letter, it looks like in a, a completely, um, every other time when I've read it, it's like, now what's he talking about? But you today showed um, that you're right, we can overcome if he overcame for us. And this is what's waiting for us that are willing to put to death the flesh and live for him. It's like, that's beautiful <coughs> and beautiful. And, should be motivation. Hopefully it's motivation. Yeah, the, the last letter to the church, Laodicea, was come buy from me gold from the fire, yeah. come buy from me salve to open your eyes, clothes, right? Come buy from me the clothes to make yourself white. So he, he, he offers the judgment and criticism, but he's also saying, I am the priest who is going to clean the church. I can give you what you need to become what I'm telling you to do. If you come to me, come to me to find what you need. I can refine. It, so that, that, that really is the offer. There's a challenge, but he, he doesn't say, just go figure it out. You guys are so screwed up. Fix yourself. That's not the image. The image is of the priest maintaining the lampstand. If you receive his instruction, he will come in and dine with you. He will strengthen you. He will enable you. He will carry you. He's not asking us to do something that is beyond our reach. He's done that for us, just like you said, Pam. So, so yes, and the images are tough images in the rest of the book, but they are all making us see that that's exactly what's happening. He's, later on in the vision, there's like contradicting visions. In one sense, it says he gave the beast to overcome the saints. And then in another vision, it's like no one can overcome these until their job is done. Then another vision, there's an altar with all the dead souls that have been killed for their witness of Christ. And then it says there, they're like, how long until you judge? And he's like, until the number has been filled. So there is a sense of which these it's like there's a, what looks like defeat in the world's eyes. We're being invited to rethink that in our human experience. What does it mean to be successful for the Lord, to overcome? Like even what does it actually mean to overcome? Is it, is it really simply like becoming more righteous on earth? And I think we're going to be challenged with that in, in the book. It doesn't look like that in the letters. It's going to be having the blood of the Lamb wash over our clothes going to be letting that ring true in our lives. It's going to be like part of what you said, Pam, like accepting that truth, that reality. It's going to be just simply being faithful to sh- to share the word, not convert the world, to share the light. That's going to be the overcoming power of the church. First John 5, your faith is the victory. It, that's your victory, is believing and sharing it, not necessarily making other people follow it. So there's there's so many neat challenges that the vision of Revelation offers us that are that are for now and also hope for the 
for the future. You know, I was taught and ran under the assumption it was true for a long time, the other timeline that you had up. But when you start reading scripture, there's a lot of things that you look at that say, how does this fit? You know, especially in light of the kingdom. Um, and so you wonder, is it different? And if it is different, what does it look like? And in my head, I almost look at it as like a computer program. In that in a Windows program, you've got things running in the background that you don't see, which is where we are now in the kingdom. But at one point in the future, that's going to be brought to the front. Mm -hmm. where it, faith will be sight. Jesus will be, God will be on earth with me. But for right now, we don't see that. And I mean, even the, just think of the parable that Jesus taught about how can someone come to your house and rob you unless first he ties up the owner. And so, yes, Satan has power but that's who he's talking about I've come, I've tied him up which is why I'm healing all these people and he's ticked about it so for right now things are running in the background but it's still the kingdom of God is how we're supposed to live mm -hmm. while we're here and then one day that will be Fully, yeah. As Paul says, one day we will judge angels. Yeah. We're not fully exercising and living in the kingdom, but we are in it to some degree. And it's uh, about a new life. Spiritually dead humans being regenerated to, to the life that God offers us. So, yes, lots, lots we could actually spin off of that and talk about. And we are now at the end of time. But we will um, return to just... Sharpen up four and five here uh, for us. So if you want to reread that, and if you do want to venture out into the to the to the next vision or two, if you want to go to chapter uh, six to nine, right? That'll give you, I think, I believe, both the seals and the trumpets. If you want to put that under your belt and just kind of feel comfortable with that, because that's we'll we'll broadly outline what that will look like as we look at those. Um, but we will just reflect a little bit more on four to five and flesh out the ideas that we're talking about here, the kingdom of God among us, what that can look like for us. So we'll, we'll leave it at that for today. With enough time to meander up there and get a seat. Make good time. Good time and good use of our time today. Thanks, guys.